Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, again, I'm Ryan White. I don't know if I said that. I'm the pastor here, and it's my joy to be opening up God's Word with you. We'll be in the book of Ruth, chapter 4. We're finishing, we're nearing, not this week, but next week, we're nearing the end of our journey through this little Old Testament narrative. If you don't know the story of Ruth, it's the seventh, Joshua, Joshua, it's the eighth book in the Bible. It's this little short story that you can read in the afternoon. It's about two widows, an old Israelite widow named Naomi and her young daughter-in-law, a Moabite, a foreigner named Ruth, and they are in dire need, and they have thrown themselves at the feet of the Lord trusting his power to pull them through. And last week, we looked at the climactic scene in this story. It was a midnight rendezvous on the threshing floor between the bold and ever-faithful Ruth, everyone's favorite Moabite widow, and Boaz. He's the uh, worthy and righteous man, Bethlehem's favorite son, who had shown such great generosity to these widows in their hour of need. And it was there in the darkness in this fraught and sexually charged moment that Ruth, who is this recent convert and follower of the Lord, she chose to trust God completely and live life his way. And instead of seducing or entrapping this man of means to secure her future, she did what was culturally unheard of. She proposed marriage to him. We hear Boaz whisper, into the black of night, when he recognizes that a woman is lying there beside him, he says, who are you? And Ruth answers, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread the wings, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This act required great courage, because Ruth was young, she was formerly a pagan, she was penniless, she was foreign to this dramatic degree. She is Boaz's social inferior. Yet in that moment, he declares her worthy. He identifies her as a woman of valor, a person of great inner strength. He commends what he recognizes as her undying devotion to her mother-in-law, her fierce commitment to to the God of Israel. He sees that in their late night dealings there, she is passionate to preserve not only Boaz's honor and reputation and her honor and reputation, but the Lord's honor and reputation. She's throwing herself fully in dependence on this Hebrew word we've learned, God's chesed, his extraordinary loyalty and his gracious devotion to those he calls his own. And he, she invites Boaz to be an agent of God's steadfast love to her and her mother-in-law, to be the channel through which God can pour out his loving kindness and his mercy. She makes of Boaz a costly Request. She says, muster yourself and redeem our family. We are in dire straits. We are in need of redemption. Will you be our redeemer? Now, I want to stop us there because what does this word redeem even mean? It's not entirely foreign to our ears, but it's not something we say a lot. 
kind of in our moment, our cultural context, the only thing we really redeem are coupons, right? I guess you can redeem a legacy. I think back to um, USA Basketball, Summer Olympics, what was that, 08, the redeem team where uh, Kobe and LeBron and company had to, to redeem America's standing in the world after we lost so pitifully in Athens in 04. Sorry, basketball nerd. If you were to look redeem up in the dictionary, you would be presented with three possible definitions. Number one is this, to compensate for the faults or bad aspects of something. It took them 45 minutes to get their food, but the experience was redeemed when the manager gave them their meals at half price. The other definition you can go with is to gain or regain possession of something in exchange for payment. He redeemed his grandfather's watch at the pawn shop. Or a third definition is to fulfill or carry out a promise. Now in office, the governor was compelled to redeem all the pledges he made on the campaign trail. Do you discern a, a common thread between these definitions? All of them have to do with paying the price and bearing the cost in order that someone else might recover from a loss and have their future secured. My favorite part of the dictionary, which is a weird statement to say, but I'm a word nerd, is when you get the little etymology of the words. I almost don't care about the definitions. I want to see the etymology. And when you break down redeem to its Latin roots, it literally means to buy back. And you have to notice both of those words. It is, I will buy, I will, I will pay, I will bear the cost to help someone recover from this loss. But that's only half of it. It's also not just I will pay, but I will buy back. I will secure your future so that you might be linked back with, so that you might be in relationship. You might see that relationship restored with someone or something that is even greater. Think of the examples I just mentioned. In the first instance, the manager buys back the customer's loyalty to the restaurant by giving them a hefty discount. In the second, the grandson buys back for the family, that family heirloom. And then the politician buys back the voters' goodwill towards their party by holding true to their word even when it proves costly. It's a hypothetical, guys. I will pay the price and bear the cost to secure your present status and to ensure your future standing and your relationship. In this case, with your people, with your inheritance, with your purpose, with your God. So now let's see how this works itself out in the story of Ruth. Chapter 3 ended, and Boaz is committing to act as Ruth and Naomi's redeemers, but he introduces a final wrinkle into the drama. He says there's another man, heretofore unknown, a closer relative with the means and the responsibility 
to redeem. He reports to Ruth on the threshing floor, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. If he will redeem good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. And with that pronouncement, our scene shifts from the privacy of the threshing floor to the public forum, to the city gate where legal matters are settled and decided in the ancient world. And we read this starting in chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And they sat down. And he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, this is Ruth's mother-in-law, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative, her dead husband Elimelech. And so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Boaz leaves the threshing floor. He goes immediately to the city. And in those days, most, some of Israelite cities, they were walled to protect against raiders and marauding armies. And behind the city gate was this big open area where troops could muster to defend their city. But in times of peace, it became this kind of hub of social and civic activity. It's a little Pioneer Park, it's a little uh, city hall, it's a little the local law courts all mixed together. You've got merchants, uh, you've got uh, judges, you have visitors, you have messengers all doing their business there in the city gate. And every day the farmers would pass through the gate from their homes as they were going out to their fields and their threshing floors and their wine presses. It was the logical place to find someone whom you might be looking for. The logical place to settle a matter of consequence. And Boaz, he seizes the initiative. He assembles these elders to act as witnesses to what's going to go down. They're going to oversee any legal transactions. They're going to ensure that everything happens in accordance with law and custom. But Boaz is not the only person getting his ducks in a row. We also sense God orchestrating events behind the scenes. Just when he's needed, this other nameless relative just happens to pass through the gate. It's not coincidence. It might not have been on his agenda for the day, but it was certainly on God's calendar. It's as if he is showing up for a divine appointment. And Boaz, he calls the relative over. And remember, they're both somehow related to Naomi's late husband, Elimelech. And Boaz implores the man, hey, buy back Elimelech's ancestral land. It was foreclosed upon and they sold it off prior to their departure as refugees to Moab. So buy back our cousin's plot 
so that the land stays in the family. And guess what? The profits that the land earns, they can support Naomi, our our distant cousin, in her deep, deep need. And so this nameless relative, the Hebrew literally calls him Mr. So-and-so. No joke. It doesn't sound the same, but it's... It's the same thing in Hebrew. He's amenable to this idea. He has the means to buy back the land, and to him this proposal makes good business sense. Not only can sure he aid his distant relative, uh, but Naomi is an old woman with no living sons. Upon her death, Elimelech's ancestral land will pass to his last nearest male relative, which is Mr. So-and-so. So in a few short years, yes, he'll have to care, take care of this old lady. But once she kicks the bucket, that land is his and it's his for good. He gets to almost double his land holdings and he balloons the inheritance that he gets to pass down to his kids and his grandkids. He's like, this is my lucky day. Let's do it. Let me know where I can sign. And then Boaz starts to read to him the fine print, and he gets some second thoughts. Then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Stick with us. I know this is, we have some cultural distance with this text, but I think this is a powerful picture for us. He says, redeeming a piece of property is one thing. Redeeming a widow and a name is quite another. You see, in the Torah, what you might call the Law of Moses, the first five books of our Bible, God envisions three things. There's three things that he yearns to see preserved among his people. Three things that might one day require costly redemption. And our key texts here are going to be Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25. The first thing that might need redemption one day is Israel's ancestral land. When God settled his people in the promised land, he gave each family a gift a plot of land in his kingdom that would be theirs, families in perpetuity. This was their spiritual inheritance. Think of it this way. This was their stake and their participation in the new world that God was creating on the earth. And how might someone lose their connection to that future, that spiritual inheritance that God intended for them? Well, typically it was poverty and debt. Their experience of lack and their inability to meet their obligations would cause the land to be foreclosed upon and sold to another. And this is what happened to Elimelech. The second thing that he identifies might be in need of redemption are are actually his people. Sometimes even after all of your property gets sold off, it's not enough to cover your debts. And in that day, your creditors, would, they would come and find you, they'd put you in chains, and you would be 
compelled into indentured servitude until you paid off every last penny and whatever pennies racked up along the way. Or maybe you were captured the old-fashioned way. Foreign raiders enslaved you. Somehow you were held in bondage by an outside force. You would require a redeemer to buy you back. And yes, Ruth and Naomi are still technically free at this point, but they're already prisoners of desperation. They're held in thrall by their poverty and their hunger. The third thing that God's Word envisions might need redemption is our names beyond the grave. In the ancient world, one's name, you hear like the name of the Lord be praised. They don't just like his letters, right? The name represents the whole of who you are, your personality, your legacy. We might even say your soul. And there was fear in the ancient world that death could cause your name to be forgotten and you to slip into oblivion. If you had no living descendants, if no one remembered your name, it was like you ceased to exist or have ever existed. It's like the very essence of who you are was annihilated and forgotten. You were beyond any sense of hope. One of the most dreadful curses back in the day was may your seed perish and your name die out. Yet God, in contrast, has a passion to see the names, the very essence, souls, and personalities of his people preserved even after death. Why do you think there's so many genealogies in the Bible? These ancient Jewish authors are keeping memories alive. They're preserving names. And now we have this family that's teetering on the brink and an entire family line threatens to slip out of existence. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, her sons, Malon and Kilion, they've died without descendants. All we have is a, an old woman behind, beyond childbearing years and we have a foreign widow in Ruth who is herself childless. And when those two widows pass away in a few short years and less than a generation, all of those who came before, all of those who they knew and loved will fade and almost into like the background radiation of the universe. They'll disappear. But God says, no, their names must be preserved and they require a redeemer. And this is really bizarre to us, but God instituted in the Old Testament this custom called leveret marriage. And here's what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 25. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. That the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name might not be blotted out of Israel. And then it goes on, if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. 
Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him, and if he persists, if he continues to refuse, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull off his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, Show it shall be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. I know that sounds bizarre. It's beyond our cultural understanding. But God has such a value to see our names preserved even beyond death. So this brother is called upon to marry his late brother's widow so that he might produce an heir that will carry on his brother's name, that might carry on and preserve his inheritance. And it's to this that Mr. So-and-so so vigorously objects. To him, the thought of marrying Ruth is just objectionable. I don't know if it's because he sees her as foreign and suspect because she used to be a pagan. It might just be that all of a sudden the financial math doesn't add up anymore. It's not just care for one old lady till she dies and then get the whole inheritance. Now he has to care for the old lady. He has to care for Ruth. If they have a son, he has to care for that kid. And then all of that inheritance he doesn't get to keep, it goes to the kid. And if they don't have a second kid, all of his inheritance will go to that kid. And he's afraid that his estate, his future, will be called into question. So he says, I can't stand in the gap for these two. Let them go. It's too costly. I won't do it. So let's see what happens. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. This should sound familiar. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. It's almost like he's saying, I'm not willing to walk in the shoes. You walk in them. Here, take my shoes. Then Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to her sons Kilion and Melon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Melon, I have brought, bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. So we'll stop there today. With open eyes, both men see the cost of redemption. And Mr. So-and-so says, nope, not worth it. Damning them forever. But Boaz says, I will pay the high price. I will bear the cost to see their names preserved, their present restored, and their future secured. He's restoring their footing in the community of God's people. He's securing their place and their participation in the world that God is creating. He won't let them slip through the gaps. He's kinky, keeping them linked up with the God who loves them and yearns to show them hesed. He's undoing the damage 
and the separation that was caused by their poverty, their debt, their enslavement, the very forces of death that are crushing in around them. And praise God that Ruth and Naomi found a Redeemer who is willing to buy them back. And here was a man who was willing to put his own estate, his own future in jeopardy, to put his hopes and dreams and plans on hold to rescue them and secure their future. I know this all feels foreign to us. We recognize our distance from a story like this, but I pray that there is something resonating there for you. That the story starts to buzz with life because it's poked all through with the gospel. What would happen if no Redeemer was found? Well, everything they possessed would be lost. They would have ended up in bondage to their debts, victims of outside forces. They would have been cut off from the community of God's people, separated from their spiritual inheritance. They would have been all alone and then soon forgotten with everyone and everything they ever loved slipping into oblivion. But could anyone just step up and redeem them? No. There was requirements for a redeemer. One, they had to be near of kid. They had to be a blood relative. They had to be able to redeem. They could, couldn't be in crisis themselves, in need of redemption themselves. They had to be willing to redeem. And this is where Mr. So-and-so just falls short. He's unwilling to save another and risk that his own name would be forgotten. Yet in a bitter irony, no one remembers his name. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. I love the little twisting of the knife of the author. I'm not going to name this dude. And the fourth requirement is the price must be paid in full. It is quite possible that no Redeemer would have been found and they would have been left in their desperate straits. Is anyone part of an evangelical church or listening to Christian radio in the early 2000s? There was a song on the radio, a lot, Nicole C. Mullins, I Know My Redeemer Lives. It was like a gospel. She was belting it out. I know. That's about all I'm going to do. My Redeemer lives. Well, it's, it's rooted in a verse from the book of Job, the oldest part of the scripture. Job has been going through hell. He's experienced loss after loss. He's been tormented by the devil. He's in desperate need of rescue and redemption, but there is no living person who can redeem him. He has no one near of kin, no one who's able to rescue, no one who's willing to redeem him. All of his friends just come and lecture him. No one will pay the great cost for his life. Yet in faith, Job shouts to the heavens. He says, for I know, I don't know him yet, but I know my Redeemer lives. And at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh... 
I will see God. He says, my Redeemer will be God somehow in the flesh whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold. It will be God and not any other. Job has no earthly hope. He has no Redeemer, but he insists that God himself will stand up and act as his Redeemer. Do you see the Gospel here now? God will not abandon us. He will not let our poverty, our debts, bondage to evil, even death itself, win in our lives. But He will come and bear the cross. One of the most beautiful names for Jesus in all of Scripture is He is our kinsman redeemer. Well, does He fit? Well, He has to be a new, near relative, right? Well, that's the story of the incarnation, right? He, he takes on our flesh. He steps into our world so that he might have the right to redeem. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore, he had, been, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest mediator in the service of God to make propitiation, to deal with our sins. Philippians 2.7, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, as our now near kinsman, as someone who shares our humanity, he has the right to redeem us. He also, though, is able to redeem us because he is not in calamity himself. He is not in need of redemption. He is not in crisis. He is sinless. He is perfect. He is strong. And because of that, He is able to redeem. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, it says in Hebrews 4.15, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 2 Corinthians 8.9 For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by His poverty, His self-emptying, His wealth, might become rich. He is sinless. He is strong. He has the full resources of heaven available. He is able to redeem us. But Mr. So-and-so was able to redeem and did not have the heart of a redeemer. But Jesus declares, I am willing to redeem. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, Jesus says, Mark 10.45, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Titus 2, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself, to buy back for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. He's bringing us back to relationship with God, bringing us back to our spiritual inheritance, bringing us back to the purpose for which we were created. And then on the cross, he pays the full price of our redemption. He cries out, It is finished. Mr. So-and-so was worried about putting his inheritance at risk. Jesus put his very life not only at risk, he laid it down 
and that in this, is, it is finished can be heard paid in full. Corinthians says we were bought with a price. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, know that you were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, to condemn us, but in order that we might be saved through him. Boaz is just a picture of Jesus. He's a real guy, don't get me wrong. This is a historical story, but he's a sign that is pointing ahead. God says, I know that you don't got enough. I know that you've racked up debt, not just financial, but moral and relational and emotional. You've traumatized people. You've done wrong things. I know that some of you are enslaved. You're in bondage to destructive habits, to to old pain. You're threatened by death, and death threatens to just delete you from human existence. I'm not going to leave you there. I will redeem you. But we have to be willing to know him as our kinsman redeemer. He's moved heaven and earth. He's taken on our flesh. He's paid the price. Will we let him rescue and redeem us? If you haven't known Jesus as your kinsman redeemer, don't go another day. The poverty, the debt, the enslavement to the forces of evil, death, all of those are real. And honestly, we can't do anything about them. We are in need of a rescue. And Job says, I know that somewhere rescue is coming. And Jesus says, yes, I'm here. So receive him with open arms. Pray with me. Dear God, We try to say we're, we're not in dire straits. We try to say things are okay, we'll figure it out. You let us be broken. You let us be in need. But you don't, let us, you don't leave us there, God. You rescue. And we thank you that you have. God, this morning we confess to you our need, our brokenness. We believe the heart that you've shown us in your word that you are willing to rescue and save. And we trust that what you did on that cross, what you did through that empty tomb was enough to restore us back to God, to bring us back into the purpose that you created us for, to bring us back into the spiritual inheritance. So we accept, we believe, we confess, and we let us be embraced by your love and your grace. If there's anyone out here today, Lord, let today be the day that they say yes to your redemption. Buy us back at great price. We are forever and eternally grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.